morning, we have the pleasure of hearing from a good friend of mine, James McNair, who uh, is a member uh, at Tech Little Baptist Church. Um, interestingly, we both grew up similarly overseas. Uh, our parents were both working in the government, so we had the opportunity to travel in our youth, and we both discovered that when we both moved to the States, we had a very hard time figuring in why everyone, uh, figuring out why everyone was so into what they wear. And so it took us a couple decades to figure out, this is how we, we're, we're cool. Uh, I think we both own the same FUBU shirt and Fila shoes. Uh, just a, a part of growing up overseas. Uh, James is... Uh, as I said, a member of Capitol Hill Baptist Church, I met him when he was going through their pastoral internship program there, and now he is the um, uh, managing director for uh, Nine Marks, and, uh, and Nine Marks has been a blessing to us and a lot of the resources that uh, they put out. And so James is here to preach for us from Philippians. Uh, James, come bring us the word, brother. Thank you, Steve. Well, good morning. It is a joy to be here with you this morning. I... Uh, I love every opportunity the Lord gives me to uh, preach his word, to teach his word. Uh, I've been given some unique opportunities where I'm currently at at Capitol Hill Baptist Church and, and also other churches like this one. Uh, so this is uh, a joy to be with you. This is my first time ever here. I didn't know where this was at. Uh, there's always a fear of preaching at churches that you've never been at because you, you're trusting your GPS like with all your heart. You're like, oh, I hope this is getting me in the right direction. You go to the website, you grab the address, you may verify that address a few times. And, and, then, when you find, and then when you get around the corner, you see the church and you, ver- you look at the sign and you're like, okay, it does say Greenbelt Baptist Church. And you kind of rehearse it a few times. You want to make sure. Then you look for someone, a familiar face, and obviously there's Steve. So uh, it is a joy to be here. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm excited to uh, go with you through the book of Philippians. Um, I've... I've as Steve said, I've gotten to know Mike and, and Steve now for a few years, and it's been an encouragement. It's been a unique encouragement. You, you, uh, you, Greenbelt, you are extremely blessed to have these two brothers uh, here leading churches. I know you're probably well aware of. Uh, this church is known by other churches. Uh, my church, Capitol Hill Baptist, we pray for you often. I think almost once a week. It's weird sometimes. I'm like, and like, so you guys are known throughout the Beltway mostly because our, our church has a deep affection for you, even though. Um, most of our church has never met uh, most of you. Uh, so once again, it's exciting to be here. It's an excitement to, to preach God's word here. And uh, that my, my hope for you, my hope is that for, for you is the same that it is for my church as well. And that's this, that the people who, who, who have not experienced or have tasted the goodness of God, that they taste the goodness of God. I want to see people transformed by the gospel. That I also desire to see, and my my hope and my prayers for for this church and my church is the same desire to to see people who who knows God, who who has tasted and has seen the the glory of God, be edified through the church. And my my hope and my prayer uh, is that every local church, wherever it's in Maryland or Virginia or overseas and China or Dubai or Europe where I grew up, uh, or even inside of this beltway in Virginia and other parts of, uh, of the U.S., that everyone around us sees something very unique of what happens among God's people in a local community where love is being shared, where commitment is bonded, is bonded between people who are different but yet unified on a common cause and this, this thing built upon this groundwork in which Christ has already laid for us. And so that's my prayer. That's my constant prayer for you. That was my prayer this morning for you as I was preparing 
It's a prayer for even my church back in D.C. And so my hope is that as we look at what Paul's hope is for this church in Philippi, which is the same hope that I shared, which has been the same hope for the past 2,000 years, that we be edified and we, we grow in our joy in God because of what we see from God in God's word. So before we continue, let's, let's go before him and ask of him. Father, we are needy, needy people, and we are people that have recognized that as we grow in our understanding of you, we realize our place as, as people, as your creation, that we need our creator. We are created to worship you, to honor and glorify you. We ask, Lord, that you would help us even in this time, uh, this morning, as we look at your word. Open it up to us, we pray. It's in Christ's name. Amen. If you have a Bible with you, a copy of God's word, turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. That's Philippians chapter 4. Starting at verse 4. Verse 4 says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts in your minds, in Christ Jesus. Once again, my hope is that we leave today with a refreshed joy in the Lord. And I have a simple, easy outline for us to follow through. Uh, three simple points this morning. Rejoice in God, pray to God, and receive from God. Rejoice, pray, and receive. And up until this chapter in his letter, Paul, uh, in typical fashion, what he's doing, he's pouring out his heart. It's a book with four chapters broken up here as we kind of, as we aim to understand kind of this letter into different parts and segment it into four different chapters. Up until this point, what we see is this emotion and this love for this church from Paul. He is just overflowing with joy for them. He desires to see them stand in unity as God's people and for them to protect themselves from external and internal threats. So maybe today or tomorrow, uh, if it's been a while since you've read the book of Philippians, I'm just going to encourage you to take some time uh, and, and read through this letter. It's short, it's edifying. And what you'll see is you'll see Paul expressing over and over again from the first chapter to the end of this letter his love and care for them and how he desires that they have the same joy and the same confidence and the same contentment that he is also experiencing in Christ. He wants them to experience the exact same thing. They supported his missionary work when other churches did not support him. He tells them again and again to rejoice throughout this letter. He tells them again and again to stand firm, exhorts them to holiness and to unity in Christ. And he exhorts them to shine in in the faces of this watching world with godly character. He reminds them that their citizenship, their citizenship is in heaven. Unlike the world that sets their minds on the earthly things around them and earthly matters. They are awaiting for the return of Jesus 
their Lord. And that brings us to chapter 4, where he brings us uh, in this letter to a, a sort of a close. But this closing is a powerful closing. It's a powerful message. And Paul is, is really just highlighting what he's already said over and over and over again. Um, and he's hammering it and hammering it in. But if you read chapter 4 like I have, and just in terms of just meditating on it and reading it and, and just really letting it kind of like soak in, you'll see this sweet reminder of who God is and of who we are. And it's a wonderful reminder of God's provision for God's people. It should cause us to rejoice. That's our first point for this morning. Rejoice in God. Look at with me to uh, verses 4 and 5. Verse 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. I love this. This kind of present imperative verb. It's assertive. It's firm. It's commanding. It's authoritative. You have Paul who's telling his church in Philippi to rejoice. And why is Paul feeling the need to tell them this? I wonder if it had anything to do with the couple of verses right before this. Actually, go with me to uh, verse 2, where it says, I entreat Judea and entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. It seems to be some unresolved conflict here between Idia and Syntyche. Whatever their disagreement is, whatever their conflict is, Paul is encouraging, he's speaking to the church, help these women, care for these, these women, handle it basically. These women are your sisters in the church. And he goes as far as to say that their names are written in the book of life. Okay, Paul, so you're, you're reminding everyone that these women, in the midst of unresolved conflict, are Christians, and we as a church have a responsibility and are actually commissioned to intervene and to serve them and to care for them. This injured part of your body, of the God's body. So how? Paul, you know, has a cure, and he states it, rejoice in the Lord, always delight. In the Lord, be glad in Him. Have this euphoric, jubilant kind of, of joy in God. Always? Hold up, hold up. You mean Paul always be rejoicing and be glad? Yes. Always. Delight yourself in the amazing glory of God. Rejoice in Him. Rejoice despite this disunity that we're seeing between these two ladies, these unreconciled women. Regardless of the conflict that you may be experiencing and witnessing, it's this rejoicing even in the midst of conflict. So let me ask you a question. Is it fair for Paul to dictate to this Philippian church how they should respond in the midst of their trial? I mean, what does Paul know about trials? Well, friends, you can... Read his bio in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And he gives you a long list of trial after trial, of danger after danger, of hardship after hardship. Paul's life is covered and filled with trials. If you aren't aware from where Paul's actually writing this letter from, Paul is writing this letter from a Roman prison. In the early 
Roman Empire. He's writing this letter in prison in Rome. So what, what Paul's saying here, he's like, look, he's sitting here in this prison hearing reports of sin and strife among his friends and false teachers that are running rampant in the church. And, and, and he's, he has members from this church coming to visit him and he's telling them, look, he's like, follow my example, rejoice and be glad in the midst of your circumstances. His joy wasn't dictated by those circumstances of the day, but rather his, his, uh, his joy was anchored in his Savior who has and will always sustain him and deliver him. The impact of this letter would have sent ripple effects when it was read. It would have been sitting there in awe. So friends, never underestimate the power of a testimony that points to God's sustaining grace in your life. I encourage you with that. Never underestimate the power of a testimony that points to God's sustaining grace in your life. I've been reminded by God's character again and again through the the sharing of not just friends or immediate family, but also by the testimonies of members in my own church who I, I rarely know. Members of my own church who will share personal examples of hardships that they're facing and the richness of God's everlasting joy and sustaining grace in their lives. Let me encourage you for those who are practicing that currently to keep doing that. And for those who have not been vulnerable enough to share those, those struggles or those pains, let me encourage you, this is a great time to start. You'd be amazed at how God will use your trials and, your, and the challenges in your life in order to show himself greater than those challenges and greater than those circumstances and more amazing than anything we've ever experienced in order to use you as a means in order to glorify himself and encourage those around you. What the Lord currently is doing, what is the Lord currently doing in your life? What the Lord is currently doing here through Paul is he's encouraging Philippians. How's he sustaining you in your, in your seasons of plenty, in your seasons of little? Is the Lord sustaining you in your good health or your poor health? Seasons when you're feeling like you're on cloud nine or those seasons when you feel like you're in the muck of a valley. Even those times when you may feel alone. How is God showing himself to be the God of all comfort and all joy? It's amazing to see pointing here, uh, that, uh, to pointing each other towards God, that, that his character and the sharing of what he's doing can cause us to also rejoice in God. It is a great means of encouraging each other in order to rejoice and to be glad. It's reminding each other of what? That the Lord is at hand, that the Lord is near. Look with me at verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand hand. The language in this verse, I'll admit, can be a little challenging for, for, for many. Uh, reasonableness is typically defined as like a state of, 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 uh, of having good sense or sound judgment, that nature. It can be a little confusing to some to think through, you know, how does this best serve us as we're looking through uh, Philippians 4, particularly in verse 5. Um, I think for us, I think it would be best to understand this as, as in the terms of gentleness, which you know, if you're using a different translation, it may some, uh, some may use terms like moderation, gentleness, patience, softness, forbearance, gentle spirit. Uh, the Greek word here seems to be a little challenging to actually translate. But when you look at other parts of scripture that uses the same Greek word, I think gentleness 
rightly defines what Paul is saying here. So the idea being communicated in this context also from where you see this point being made in verse 2, moving on down through the rest of his points all the way into the end of chapter 4. In this context, Paul is saying that uh, in the midst of upheaval, in the midst of, 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 of relational upheaval, don't forget that a gentle answer turns away wrath. But a hard word stirs up anger. Show loving kindness to everyone inside the church where unity is lacking. And don't allow the emotional charging circumstances cause you to respond in a way that doesn't reflect the spirit's fruit of gentleness and kindness. Everyone around you should see this and feel this because you know, Philippians, that the Lord is at hand. This isn't a statement of time referring to Christ's second coming, but rather it's a statement of proximity, referring to the nearness of Christ and the closeness of Christ. Christ is close to his people in times of unrest and turmoil. Every person in here has experienced deep pain at one time or another. And every person in here knows someone who's experienced deep pain and sorrow. Christ is near in comforts and draws near to those who who calls on him, calls upon him. And it's a sweet reminder when we see this, that the Lord is close to each and every one of us. Do you remember Jesus' words to his disciples right before he left and at the end of Matthew, uh, Matthew where he says, I am always with you. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And that's the promise until the end that he will be with his people. And Paul is reminding the churches all throughout Asia Minor, and modern, which is modern-day Turkey, and, and across the Roman Empire, that God is the God of not just time, but the God of proximity, and deeply cares for each and every member of his body. Listen to what he wrote to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Friends, conflict and trials will show up in our lives in many different ways. They'll show up in our marriages. They'll show up in our singleness. You know, our marriages where two uh, sinners are coming together, forming a union, it shows up at work, work around a bunch of sinners, maybe mostly, if not all, unregenerate sinners and bosses, in our neighborhoods, among our friends, and even inside of our churches with a group of hopefully regenerated sinners coming together. Our affliction can come in many different forms from many different sources, but we and must remember to rejoice and let our gentle conduct be known to each other. Why and how? Because the Lord is at hand. Look to the Lord and seek him and ask of him. Friends, he will respond. Pray to God. And that's our second point here. Pray to God. Look down with me at verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. 
Don't worry about anything, Philippians. Don't be anxious or worried, concerned or fearful. Let me go ahead and ease your concerns here. Know that in everything, through prayer, through petition with thanksgiving, you can let your request be made known to God. You can ask of him. Ask of him. He not only, he's not only available to listen. He is a God who desires to listen. He's concerned with the affairs of his children. Friends, when it comes to different types of prayers, like prayers of praise, thanksgiving, prayers of confessing your sins, etc., in my experience and the experience that I've seen through most people, it seems as though the prayer of petition naturally comes easier to us. Have you noticed that in your life, the tendency to pray more when you need something? When things aren't going necessarily the way that you hoped they would go? And that's okay. God loves to give. And Jesus taught, you know, that our Heavenly Father is good, desires to give good gifts to his children, will supply all of our needs, right? So have you noticed that even non-religious people at some point in time, at some level, will actually kind of have like this uh, of reverence for prayer or reverence for some higher being or a God figure of some sort? And will even pray to whatever they decide to call that thing out there. Despite times, desperate times call. For desperate measures. Desperate times calls for desperate measures. Despite what we may see or face in our lives, it's amazing to see that one of, uh, if not immediately, at some point in time, we find ourselves stepping towards the Lord and seeking Him to answer our request and fulfill our needs. I remember when I was a young Christian, when I first became a Christian, I was uh, riding in my car once, and I was listening to a, a sermon from a, a, a pastor who was a pastor down in sunny, you know, Southern California. It's probably 72 degrees and sunny there in February as well, but there you see that every year. And there, I remember playing the radio, and I remember listening to uh, this pastor and friends if you're at a younger age, this is before iPods. And so uh, he, he was preaching from this, uh, this passage in which it was centered around prayer. And, and he was talking about dependence, and I still remember this as if I was listening to it yesterday. And I remember him sharing and saying how one of the big, greatest dangers for Christians, one of the greatest dangers for Christians in America, was when everything seems to be going well, when all of our needs are met, when we feel like we have everything that we could ever hope for, when all of our dreams are accomplished, and we find ourselves in a place where we don't necessarily need God. And I was like, really? What does he mean by that? They say that when Christians seem to have all their needs met, they're, they're wanting fulfilled and their comforts uh, attained, that there's a sense of dullness towards their need for their creator. Friends, as I've grown as a Christian over the past 12 years of being a Christian, I've realized how true that statement is. That when things seem to be going completely smooth and completely glorious in my life, I seek the Lord, unfortunately, less than when things are going terribly wrong and I'm in desperate need of salvation. And yet, my prayer for you, my prayer for myself is that we continually grow in our understanding of our need daily. 
that every morning we wake up, we see our need for the Lord daily, that we need new mercies and new grace every morning that we actually wake up, and that we realize that God's word is available to us and that he's listening every moment that we're awake and that we can go before him and seek him and petition him. Comfort for the Christian can be dangerous and it can be a dangerous snare of self-sufficiency and a dull sense of our need for God's hand. Paul just told the Philippians that the Lord is at hand, he's near, don't worry. And instead, uh, and instead, God petitioning, petitioning God for, for, any, for anything else to suffice or need. He's saying, go to the Lord. With a joyful spirit, make your needs be known to him. In this situation for the Philippians, he's referring to uh, the social internal strife among believers. For us, that can apply to our own relationships, our own lives. Go to the Lord for peace. Go to the Lord for deliverance. Go to the Lord for salvation. And realize that in him, that his salvation and his solution will eclipse all mental comprehension. He's standing there with open arms, with arms wide open, willing to receive us, desiring to receive us, and willing to receive. That's our third point. That in the Lord, in him having arms wide open for us to go to him, he is willing to pour out himself onto us. For us, and the call is, is for us to receive from God. So point number three, receive from God. Look at verse seven with me. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And the peace of God which surpasses and transcends all understanding will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Friends, your prayers may be answered differently than you expect them to be. Understand this, fellow Christian, that God's supernatural peace that flows from his stone is available for your soul. And in the midst of turmoil and conflict, God is the source of peace. We can receive from God peace when you, when you place your cares on him. And so this is a constant character trait of him. Uh, when you look throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, you see a God who, who says, throw your cares onto me and receive from me peace. He's the cares holder and he's the peace giver. And many organizations and companies have if you've seen out there today in our country, they'll try to sell you, uh, when they're trying to sell you something, they kind of give you this, this pitch that if you buy this product or if you buy into this idea, uh, that, that you'll receive this peace of mind. It's a catchphrase a lot of organizations use, you know, peace of mind. If you're looking for peace of mind, buy this product, right? It's very common in our society today. But friends, the peace that comes from God is only found from God. It's only found in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so Paul can say to the Philippians, you know, serve these two sisters. Rejoice in the Lord. The Lord is near to you. Pray and cast your cares on him. Receive peace from him. Is because the conflict between them 
and God was first resolved. There, there isn't true peace among a people apart from there first being peace among those people and also their God. And that's the beauty of the gospel. God, see, God sees this enormous cataclysmic uh, a gap between us and him. It's true contention, true strife between us and our creator. Human race has been at odds with this creator since the garden. And the creator has taken it upon himself to initiate peace between us and him so that he would not take the full wrath of God on us. Eternal punishment the, the, that's promised for all those who are at odds with him, God draws close to us and calls everyone everywhere to repent from their sins and to turn to the one who created them. How is this made possible? How is God doing this? Because God sent his only son as the peace offering to die in the place of everyone who would believe. Jesus Christ is the peace of God for everyone who belongs to God. And Jesus showed this to be true when he rose from the grave. And on the, thir- on the third day, and he's holding his sacrifice to God the Father. And God the Father sees it as sufficient to quench his own wrath. He accepts it. And it's sufficient for the sins of everyone who turns from their sins and looks towards him. We're now given the freedom to love him with all of our hearts and to love each other. We now have this freedom in Christ, and we now have this freedom to love our coworkers and our, our enemies and our, and our neighbors and our friends and now even our church members, those who have been reconciled with, calling them to be reconciled also to God. We can receive from God a supernatural peace that will guard our hearts and our minds from despair, from fear, from anxiety, and from unrest. We can look to him. Rejoice and be glad in God. Pray, cast your cares on him. Receive the supernatural peace that only comes from Christ and in Christ. In Christ alone is where our comfort comes from. It's in Christ alone that our hope is found. He is our light. He's our strength. He's our song. This Cornerstone, this solid ground, firmed through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when striving cease. He's our comforter. Here's our all in all. Here in the love of Christ we stand.